Amen. So, like I said, the solution is not deleting the Facebook app. The solution is not to never watch Netflix again or throw away your TV or blow up your phone. If you have a Samsung, that may have happened already, but that's why I've been telling you you should get an Apple. But anyway, um, the first solution, we're just going to dive right into it. Number one, I want you to recognize that you're in a spiritual battle. Recognize that you're in a spiritual battle. See, distraction is not a technology problem. It's not a social media problem. Distraction is ultimately a spiritual problem. What, we talked about this the past few weeks, that ultimately it's not that Facebook is the issue. It's not that your phone is the issue. Ultimately, there is something going on deep down in your heart that we're not dealing with. We're suppressing it. That we talked about. This is why substance abuse is so popular. This is why pain pills are so popular. Anything that can suppress us, anything that can get us to a point where we don't have to think about the reality of our heart. And I want you to understand, when you are tempted to suppress things, you're in the middle of a spiritual battle. Because I don't know if you know this, but the enemy, the last thing that he wants for you is to experience joy. The last thing that he wants for you is to live in the fullness of a relationship with Jesus. It's the last thing that he wants for you. He could care less about your happiness. He could care less about your joy. Now, when I say that this is a spiritual battle, some of you are like, yeah, well, that's kind of hard for me to understand because when we talk about this, that there are forces of darkness that truly do want to destroy us, it's hard for some of us to wrap our minds around that because we can't see it, right? We can't, how many of you guys, you're just realists, like, I don't believe it until I see it. Anybody? Like, you want to see it physically? Uh, if, if this is real, I need to see it happening. And, and sometimes it can be difficult for us because we don't see the forces of darkness. We don't see that there is an enemy circulating around our life every single day and wants nothing but our destruction. The truth is there is a battle waging war for your soul. And the enemy is going to do everything that he can do to distract you from the fullness of walking in Jesus. See, the last thing that he wants for you is to experience peace in this life. The last thing that he wants for you is to experience joy. I guess the question would be this, why does darkness hate us so much? You ever ask yourself that question? Like, just ask the devil, like, can you just lay off me for one day? Can you just leave me alone for just one day? The truth is the enemy hates us so much because each and every one of us are made in the image of God and he hates God. And so every single day we're a reminder that he can never win. Every single day our image is a reminder of the battle that he lost and the war that he can never win. So what is he going to do? Because he can't win the battle. He can't win the war. So what is he going to do? He's going to try to make your life as miserable as possible. So at the end of the day, you're in a spiritual battle. Listen to what Russell Moore says about temptation. He says this, Temptation is so strong in our lives precisely because it's not about us. Temptation is an assault by the demonic powers of the rival empire of the Messiah. And watch what he says. That is why conversion to Christ does not diminish the power of temptation as we often assume, but it only ratchets it up. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the moment that you get saved, maybe you had this thought process, this ideology is when I give my heart to Jesus that everything is just going to be great and it's going to be smooth sailing. What he's saying in this quote, the moment that you give your heart over to Jesus, your identity is rested in Christ and you are made in the image of God and now the enemy is going to throw more flaming arrows at you. 
the temptation is going to take it up a notch because he knows that you came from darkness to light and now you can see the truth. And now you can see the path that God has for you and now you can see where you should be walking and now you can see some, some problems that you've had in your marriage and you can see some problems that you've had maybe with your kids and you now you know the truth. You ever got saved and it feels like, man, the first month you're like on this honeymoon level, like, man, it's just, this is just awesome. I can't believe I didn't do this five years ago. I'm, I'm having an incredible relationship with Jesus. And then two months down the road, you feel like the enemy is just assaulting you from left and right. Maybe many of you have actually experienced this firsthand. You get saved and you think temptation will go away, but the truth is oftentimes it gets stronger. And it's because we're in a spiritual battle. Every day that you wake up, you walk into a battle that you cannot see, that there is a very real spiritual force of darkness that wants nothing but your destruction. There is an interesting story in the Old Testament, and it's actually found in Genesis 4, and it's about Cain and Abel. And many of us know this story. If you grew up in church, you heard this story in Sunday school or or, or somewhere along the lines. But we know this story because what ends up happening? Cain ends up killing his brother Abel, right? And most of us know that part, but most of us don't know why he did it. Why did he feel the need to kill his brother? It's the first murder that takes place. Why was Cain so upset that he felt the need to murder someone? Listen to what Genesis 4.3 says. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits. Like if you're, if you're following along in the Bible app with us or if you're taking notes, I want you to highlight that part. He brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, we don't, we don't talk like that anymore, right? God, I'm going to bring you my fat portions. <laughs> we, we don't say that word anymore. What, so what he's saying in this text is, is Abel brought everything that he had to the Lord. Abel brought his first and he brought his best and Cain just brought some. So before we read the rest, let me give you a little bit of context. That's a little something that's going on here. On the surface, it looks like they both did the right thing. If you just read it, if you just blaze over it real quickly and you don't know the story and you read it for the first time, it looks like, man, what's the big deal? I mean, Cain brought some, Abel brought some, they both gave God something. Shouldn't God be pleased with them? See, one is a farmer and he's bringing his first fruit and and, and one is one that tills the ground and another is one that hunts and he's bringing his first animals and they're saying, okay, God, we, we gave you something. We brought you something. Shouldn't you be pleased with us? Now, I think this story is an interesting parallel of our lives today. And let me explain. Most of us are willing to give Jesus a part of ourselves. We're just not willing to give everything. And what you're about to read in this text is God is actually extremely displeased with Cain. Because he only brought some of it. And he's pleased with Abel because Abel brought everything that he had. He brought the first, he brought the best. He took every part of his life and he said, hey, God, it's yours and you do what you please. And Cain, this is what he did. He said, God, I'll give you everything, but I'm going to hold on to this because I like control of this part of my life. And I think it's an interesting parallel of our lives because even many of us sit here today and maybe you're in church today and you're saying, okay, I'm willing to surrender some things, but there is this one area of my life, it it has too much pain attached to it. I'm not willing to give it over to God. 
See, many of us today, if we're just honest with ourselves, we're fans of Jesus. We wave the Christian flag as long as we can maintain control over certain areas of our life, right? So, man, we, 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 we wear the Christian t-shirt, we go to the Christian movies, we sing hallelujah, but at the end of the day, there's still pieces of our heart that we're not surrendering. And see, I don't know if you know this or if you realize this or not, but in all throughout the New Testament, and you can even see it all throughout the Old Testament, God is saying this, he says, I want all of you or none of you. Every piece of your life or I don't want any of you at all. See, we want Jesus to be convenient and manageable. But if we're honest, there are parts of our life that we say, God, this piece of us, it's off limits. If we're dishonest with ourselves. There's pieces, I mean, we stand in worship and we're ready to surrender. And then you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit tapping on that one piece of your life. And you said, God, you can have everything, but not that part. Man, maybe, maybe if you're not married in here and you're dating somebody and you're saying, God, you can have every piece of me, but you can't have my boyfriend. <laughs> can I be honest with you? Some of you probably need to leave your boyfriend so you can have a man friend called a husband later on in the future. <laughs> it's true, though. Here's the truth. So, listen to me. Some of us are holding on to rotten fruit, and God wants to bear good fruit inside of us. But because we're not willing to let go of rotten fruit, he can never give us good fruit. And here's what God wants to do today. I'm telling you, I know the past two weeks I've, I've made jokes and I've cracked up and we've had a good time, and, and now it's time to work into the solution. And oftentimes the solution is, means that God comes with a scalpel and he begins to cut things away on us. And so all I want to do this morning is, listen, if we want to set ourselves free from this ideology, this level of distraction, this culture that has a grip on so many of us, and if we really want to live the best life that God has for us, it's going to require some cutting. And it's going to require us doing some things that we don't necessarily want to do. See, in Genesis 4, Cain says, God, you can have everything, but just not my best. He offers God a part of his life, and I want you to notice this. In the text, we'll read it in a moment, but God rejects his offering. God rejects his offering. God rejects his worship. So let me put it in a modern-day context so we can wrap our heads around this. Imagine if you were in Cain's position. You came in here this morning. You're ready to worship. You're ready to, you know, lift your hands. You're ready to hear the word, and somebody at the door taps you and says, you know what, you're not ready. You need to get out of here. You'd be like, I am never going back to that church ever again, right? So it'd be like somebody looking at you saying, you know what? Uh, God just, he spoke to me and he said that you're not giving your all. You can't worship this morning. Goodbye, you see you later. Go find another church. Or what if you opened your Bible and as soon as you went to go read it, God said, just stop. <laughs> you don't want to read it anyway. You're just reading it so you don't feel guilty. You'd be like, oh my gosh. Or, or, or what if you came and you were ready to pray and God says, just don't pray. You don't want to spend time with me. You just want something from me. That's all you care about anyway. Let's just be, how many, just be honest for a moment. How many of you would be offended? How many of you would just, come on, every, every single person, you're like, I wouldn't be offended. Yes, you would. Every single person in this room would be offended if you were ready just to bring something to God and God rejects it, and he says, no, that's not your best. 
See, people prove my point every single Sunday. Every single Sunday. And I know this because every single Sunday I stand up here and I see people sleep. (laughs) And, And let me tell you why we do it. We do it because we believe that good people go to church, but we're not here to get anything from it. So we say, God, I'm here. I showed up. Can you mark it off the checklist, right? This is what we do in South Louisiana. Like in South Louisiana, if you say that you don't like God, somebody will punch you in the face, right? (laughs) Like everybody in the South loves God. We all go to church even though we come once every two months, right? But why do we do it? Why do we, we got to keep up appearances. Why? Because good people do it. Why do we read our Bible even though we don't want to? Because good people do it. Why do we show up here every Sunday? Because we, we want to be categorized as good people. You want God to give you credit for showing up, right? This was Cain's mentality. In Genesis 4, this was his mentality. He said, God, I showed up. I gave you something. You need to be proud of just what I offered. Cain's attitude is, God, I hope you're happy that I just brought you something. But Cain actually got angry at God for not being pleased with what he brought. Let's read it. Genesis 4, um, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? He says, why is your face downcast? Now watch this. I want you to notice in this part. Cain has not brought God everything, but watch how God gives him a way out. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now listen, that is the mercy and grace of God right there. He says, Cain, if you just go back home and you bring me the best fruit, I'll forgive you and all this can be wiped away. It says everything, all of that can be wiped away. What is God saying? He's saying, Cain, I don't want your leftovers. I want your best. He's saying, Cain, I want all of your heart, not just a piece of it. And he said, if you can just bring me everything, then things will be made right between us. Now watch what God says here, and this is so important. And this proves that we're in a spiritual battle right here. Verse 7, this is God speaking. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I don't know if you know this or not, like sin desires you. It wants you. And it's going to do everything that it can to get you. I think God actually gives us an insight of how sin actually works in this verse. See, most of us think that sin is just breaking the rules, right? This is what we've learned in church before. If you're a Christian, then you do A through Z, right? follow the rules, stay in line, make sure you hang around good people and keep up appearances. And this is what we think sin is. But sin is something that is active. It is actually living and it is actually something that desires you. It does not want to get you just to break the rules. It wants to possess you. It wants to become who you are. It wants to become a part of your life. Not only does it desire you, it wants to change you. You ever see people, I talk to them all the time, they say, listen, my actions, that is not the person that I want to be, and I don't know why I do it. It's because sin has them. They're doing things that they thought that they would never do. They're doing things that they promised themselves that they would never be, and they don't know why they can't do it. They can't stop doing it, but ultimately it's because sin has a grip on them. 
I want you to understand this. I'm going to throw this on the screen. Your sins will always appear smaller to you than they really are. Your sin will always appear to you. It's not a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. See, in your eyes, your sin is not that bad, right? And we do this because we have rating systems for sin. We have rating systems to make ourselves feel a little bit better about ourselves. Well, yeah, I mean, I did that, but man, have you seen my neighbor, God? They're bad. <laughs> like, at least I'm not that bad, right? At least I'm not that bad. Have you ever noticed someone who has a temper problem or an anger problem and everybody notices it but them? Like, everybody around them calls it out. But instead of owning it, no matter how many times somebody points out their anger, they minimize it. It's not that big of a deal. Instead of owning their issue, they kind of have excuses for it. So let me give you some excuses that we make. I'm not rude. I'm just direct. (laughs) I'm not rude. I'm just direct. Or how about this? I'm not greedy, I'm just cautious. I'm not greedy, I'm just cautious. Or or how about this one? This is the one that Christians love to use. I'm not religious, I'm just holy. See, we, we minimize our sin. We make excuses for it because in our eyes, our sin is not that big of a deal. But see, this is the nature of sin. It's not that bad. Our sins are usually impossible to see in the mirror because we minimize them. Rosaria Butterfield has a quote that that I thought was so perfect for this, and she says this. She said, one very difficult aspect about sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life, plain and simple. (laughs) See, some of us have been so distracted by culture, we don't even know we're sinning. Like Rosaria says, she says, listen, my sin doesn't feel like sin, it just feels like life. It just feels normal to me, it just feels like something that I should do. I don't feel guilty for it, but I want you to know that sin will always disguise itself. Have you ever noticed like every time you're tempted to do something wrong, when that temptation comes, like, not like the temptation says, hey, do this, you will screw your life up, but it's going to be awesome. <laughs> like it never presents itself that way, right? It always presents itself in a way that says, hey, man, this is what you need, right? You just, you just follow your heart, you fairy. You just follow your heart. <laughs> Everybody loves, you know, you'll be okay, It always presents itself in a way where it's not that bad. It minimizes itself. And distraction works just like sin. It it disguises itself with things that seem harmless. It's not that bad. See, if you have a really unhealthy social media habit, it's going to be hard for you to notice it in the mirror. This is why we're always talking about joining the life group. That's why we're always talking about joining community here at this church. That's why we're always talking about this cannot just be a place that you plant yourself on Sunday morning. You have got to be involved in the life of this church. Why? Because other people people can see things that you can't see yourself. 
See, you need other people to help sharpen you, to help grow you, to help push you. Because in healthy communities, others can see where you're failing and they can lift you up. See, some of you, like, at least you're self-aware enough to know, you're like, you know, I, I know I have some issues. I just don't know how to fix them. And the truth is, you've been down that path for years and you're never going to fix it yourself. But somehow we believe the lie that we can. We believe the lie like, oh, just be me and God. I don't need to confess this. I don't need to tell anybody this. I don't need to get involved in a life group. I swear, I'm different. The truth is you're not. You're just like everybody else that thinks that they can hide their sin and eventually it'll get right. It never does. See, in the end, I want you to understand something. Change is impossible without self-awareness. Change is impossible without self-awareness. And self-awareness only comes through community. You ever sat down with somebody? Uh, like you went the whole day with a booger on your nose. And you sit down and somebody's like, bro, I don't know how long that's been. There. It's pretty dry. It looks pretty disgusting. <laughs> but like you need to wipe that off. Your but you never knew. Why? Because you weren't self-aware. You, weren't so you did not know. You know there's things just like that in your life. There's things in your life that everybody else can see. But listen. Because we've detracted into a culture where we hate people telling us the truth, as soon as we get into community and they lovingly tell us the truth, they're like, I'm so offended. I can't believe they said that. I'm out of here. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we, we are dangerously moving towards a, a culture where nobody can tell us the truth anymore. Like everything is offended, offensive. Everything is offensive. You can walk outside and you come up to your neighbor and they're like, man, that, that, that shirt looks good on you. What are you saying? It looks bad? That's, that's not what I said. <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> like we're offended at everything now. And the truth is, one of my, one of my favorite pastors, who's actually an overseer of one of our church, Pastor Jim LaFoon, he gave a message years ago and he said, the truth is most Christians should wear a chain around their neck with a sign on it that says, tell me the truth because I need it. Like, you need people to look at you in the eyes, graciously and lovingly tell you the truth so that you can become self-aware, so that you can change. Chris Lungard puts it this way, and he's speaking of sin. He says, sin can be like trick birthday candles. You blow them out and smile, thinking you have your wish. Then your jaw drops as they burst into flames. That's what sin is. You ever have a week where you're like, I've done it. I have defeated temptation. <laughs> like, this is awesome. I have come to the place where this issue is no longer an issue in my life. And then all of a sudden, the next week, you fall right back into it. Sin will even convince you that you have it under control. See, you're in a spiritual battle. So how do we win? How do we win the war of distraction? How do we win the war against temptation? The first thing that we've got to learn to do is we've got to surround ourselves with Christian community that will tell you the truth and help you become self-aware. See, distraction is a spiritual battle, and how will you ever be aware of your vices if nobody is telling you? Can I tell you this? If you're the only one that speaks truth into your life, you're in a dangerous spot. And can I tell you, your mom doesn't count. <laughs> Your parents don't count. They're blinded by love too many times. 
Truth is, we all need people in our lives. This is why life groups are so incredibly important. It's the backbone of this church. Like, if you want to grow spiritually, you have to get connected with other people. So if you want to win the war against distraction, number one, realize that you're in a spiritual battle. So we fight a spiritual battle with spiritual things. We pray. We dive into community. We read the word, even when it doesn't make sense to us, but you read it long enough, and it'll start coming alive to you. The second thing that we do is we actively set our mind. We actively set our mind. And this, this phrase actually comes from Scripture in Matthew 16. And let me give you a little context before I read it. Jesus is actually taking his disciples on a journey, and he turns to them, and he asks them a question. He said, hey guys, what's, what's, what's the word on the street? What's everybody saying about me? Like Jesus wants to know, hey, when you go off into restaurants and you sit down and you hear people talking about me, what are they saying about me? And his disciples respond. They said, well, some say you're Elijah, the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're some new prophet. And then Jesus asks his disciples, he says, no, but I want to I know. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, well, you are the Christ. Now, I want you to understand this is a big deal. Like in Jewish, in Jewish culture, this statement was a big deal. And there's no way that Peter arrived to this understanding on his own. Because in Jewish culture, they're waiting on a Messiah to come back and rule and reign and correct the empire. To usher them into a land of freedom. So when Peter says, listen, he says, you're not just a prophet. You're not just Elijah. You're not some new, like, cool dude. Like, you are Jesus. You are the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the one that's come down to help us. And I want you to watch what Jesus says. He says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So what is Jesus saying in this moment? He's saying, listen, Peter. He says, you've been with Jesus, and the only way that you have come to that conclusion is because you have been in my Father's presence. You have set your mind on what is true, and you have arrived to the truth. Now, I want you to watch what happens four verses later. So, keep in mind, Peter, he's been spending some time with Jesus. He has this great revelation. He realizes that Jesus is not just some average guy. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He has this amazing prayer time, and all of a sudden, four verses later, watch what happens. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So here's what I want you to understand. Four verses before, Peter has this great revelation. It is this great connection to Jesus. He set his mind on God. And right after this, Jesus starts talking about his death. And Peter doesn't like to hear that. He's, man, my, my God is going to die. I, don't, I, don't, I hate this. I don't want this. Four verses later, watch what, watch what happens. Verse 22. Peter took him aside. Now, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> he said, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now, four verses later, 
Four verses before this, Jesus is saying, it is not just you that had that thought by yourself. God revealed that to you. Man, you, Peter, you are connected to God. And four verses later, Peter is like, Jesus is like, whoa, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Imagine how low you feel at this moment. You have this great high. God is praising you. He's saying, man, you, Peter, you've had this great revelation. Four verses later in the conversation, you are getting rebuked by Jesus. So what happened? What happened? How did Peter go from this great revelation to all of a sudden completely falling out of step with who God was to feel like he had the audacity to rebuke Jesus? What happened in those four verses? Watch, Jesus tells us in verse 23. Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, if you want to win the war of distraction, you have to set your mind on the things of God. So what happened in between those four verses? Peter, rather than thinking as God have him, would have him think, he began thinking on how Peter thought he should think. Instead of relying on God for wisdom, what did he do in that moment? He had this fleshly thought. He began to rely on himself. See, Jesus makes it clear that there's two places you can set your mind. And I want you to understand this. There's only two. There's no in-between. You can set your mind on the things of God, where, where meaning your desires, your heart is set on God, or you can set your mind on the things of man. This is where your desires are on yourself. Let me explain it to you visually maybe this will help your mind is digital not analog if you want to throw that 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 uh, slide up of those switches so your mind is digital not analog i don't know if you have any of these switches in your home but digital meaning this it's on and off so if, when you turn it on the lights come on right when you turn it off the light goes off when analog switch you can kind of slide it if you want to set the mood. You know, you want mood lighting in your living room and you can bring it down just a hair and you can tap it and it can go lower and lower and lower or you can slowly bring it up and it goes higher and higher and higher. See, the analog mind loves to get there eventually. Meaning, I'll move the fader just a little bit. I'll eventually come to the place where I set my mind on God but I'm just not willing to give up everything so I'll just move the fader up just, just slightly. Just a little bit. Analog says, I'm not as committed as they are, but I'll ramp up my commitment eventually. See, we love to come over to this switch and just barely tap it up, barely slide it up. Analog says, I'm getting there. Let me adjust the fader slowly because I'm scared to commit. I'm, I'm, God, I'm scared of commitment. So once I can get past that place of, you know, I can fight that commitment, then I'll eventually get to the place where I fully commit to you. But Jesus says when it comes to your mind, you only have two options. The things of man are the things of God, and it's like an on-off switch. You can set your mind on the things of man, or you can set your mind on the things of God, and that's the only choices we get. There is no in-between. There is no adjusting the fader just a little bit or bringing it down just a little bit. You have a choice where you're going to set your mind. Romans 8.5 puts it this way. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You see, there's no sliding scale. It's one or the other, the flesh or the Spirit. And this is why in the second point I said we have to actively set our minds on Jesus. 
You can't just rely on one Sunday where you feel like this boost of energy, like I connected with God today and it fed my soul today. And then throughout the week, hopefully you can just adjust the fader just a little bit. God say, no, every single day that you wake up, you have got to renew your mind. How many of you have ever just had a great day? Like you set, your, you set your mind on Jesus and then you wake up the next day and you're like, whoa, where did that thought come from? And anybody ever had that? Or like you're in the middle of just reading your Bible and like the worst thought in your mind pops in. What, in the, where did that come from? We must actively set our minds on God, but if we're just honest with ourselves, it's so easy to set our mind on distraction. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so, it's so easy to pull this thing out and just get lost in it for a few hours, right? It's so easy to click open the Facebook app and just begin to scroll and watch videos that you probably shouldn't be watching and read statuses of people that you don't really even know. <laughs> We have to actively reset our mind every single day. See, our mind gets bumped. It gets untuned. By the time you lay your head in the pillow at night, it doesn't matter if you had a great day the night before. When you wake up, it's a completely new day, and you fight a completely different enemy who has a different strategy than he did for the day before. See, if he couldn't get you yesterday, he's not going to use the same tactic again. He's just going to keep wearing at you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this quote. And keep in mind, this was written before, like, smartphones. And he nails it. He says, in our time and place, avoiding God is extremely easy. Avoid silence and solitude. Avoid any train of thought that leads off the the beaten path. He says, concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, your own grievances. Keep the radio on. In modern day, that would just say, hey, just stay on your phone. Live in a crowd. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them carefully. But you'd be safer to stick to the papers. You'll find the advertisements helpful, especially those with sexy or snobbish appeal. (laughs) If we were to translate that, he's saying, what is he saying in that quote? He's saying, just... It's so much easier to just get distracted. It's so much easier just to pop on the TV and just watch whatever. It's so much easier, rather than reading your Bible, just to pop up in a magazine and read Health and Garden or the latest fashion or whatever it is. That's why Facebook is so tempting. Because it's just, it's, it's mindless thinking. It's not something you, that you have to actually dive into this deep place in your mind. You just, it's surface stuff. He says it's easy to avoid God by just pursuing what you want. It's easy to avoid God when your mind is set on the flesh. See, if you just set your mind on yourself, you're going to live in a distracted state. And you're always going to be asking yourself the question, like, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel like I I have this chasm between me and God? Why do I feel like I can't get any closer to God? Distraction. Our mind is not set on the right thing. See, before you know it, there's a great chasm between you and God, and you don't know why, and ultimately the why is found. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're remaining distracted. So how do we set our mind? How do we do it? Romans 8, 6 says, Focus, focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. 
Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. The person that, that person ignores who God is and what he is doing. Let me, let me boil it down to this one phrase. Your heart will follow your focus. Your heart will follow your focus. Whatever your mind is thinking on, that is eventually what you're going to act out and do. I don't know if you know this, but your thoughts don't always stay your thoughts. They eventually turn into action as long as you let them stay in there long enough. I'll just hide it. I'll just have these secret thoughts on my own and nobody will ever know about it. Eventually they will come alive. Eventually they come true. See, your heart will follow your focus. This is why it's so incredibly important to reset our focus every single day. You must intentionally focus your mind on Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but change is intentional. Change is intentional. And change is a choice that you've got to make every single day. So you can come into here and you say, okay, I I feel like I have some tools. I feel like I have some things that I know that I need to do to live the life that I know that God has for me. But it's still a choice that you have to make. You have to walk out of here and consciously make a choice to say, you know what? Today I'm not staying where I've been. Today I'm moving forward. So what does that look like for some of us? You know what it looks like for some of us to make a choice? It means that we don't sleep with our phones. Like the phone is like the new teddy bear. I love you phone. Like, <laughs> it's the first thing that you see when you wake up and it's the last thing you see when you go to bed. I don't know if you saw that little um, video that we played in the beginning but it says within 10 years, the average attention span was what? It was 45, no, it was, it was I think it was two minutes. Two minutes, and it went down to five seconds. I don't know if you know, and that video is probably two or three years old, so it's probably less than that. But I don't know about you, but one of the most aggravating things to me in the world is when I'm having a conversation with somebody, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm like, I'll slap that phone out of your hand. We're distracted. We can't even focus anymore. We can't even have a conversation with somebody because we're distracted. Your heart will follow your focus. But see, change is a choice, so maybe it means we stop sleeping with the phone. Maybe it means we delete the Facebook app for a while. Maybe instead of it being on the homepage of your screen, you move it to the last page. One of the best things that you can actually do on your phone, they have this thing... um, where you can disable notifications. Because how many of you know, like, now every app has notifications now. I mean, my, my phone, I used to have notifications on on everything, and, like, it was just going crazy. And some of it was stuff that wasn't even important at all. You know, scientists have actually proven that, uh, I don't remember what the, the, the scientific word is for it, but have, have you ever had your phone in your pocket and you think it's vibrating, and you go in to pull it out, and it wasn't vibrating. Like, our minds are starting to play tricks on us because we use our phone so much. Like, oh, I'm sure it's vibrating, and it's not. They, they've even done a study on it that whenever you get a notification or whenever your phone vibrates, that it actually induces, like, this adrenaline into your body. And depending on what the phone call is or the text message is, it can actually create anxiety in you. Like, oh God, I hope it's not my mom and she's going to ask me about this. 
hope it's not my husband and he's going to find out. Like, it actually induces anxiety in us. Change is intentional, but change is a choice. We have to actively set our mind. We have to make that choice every single day to retune our mind, retune our hearts. I love how Martin Luther puts it. He says this. He says, you may not be able to keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. We can't get rid of this. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. But we can make a choice to how much it controls our life. See, that's on us. And we can make all the excuses in the world of, oh, I need, I need to send this text message real quick. Oh, I need to update this status so everybody... Like, 10 years ago, nobody even cared about any of that. Nobody cared about what you had for dinner. <laughs> so we've got to learn to readjust, readjust our focus. We've got to learn to realign our priorities. The third point that I want to make. So number one, make sure that you understand you're in a spiritual battle. Number two, actively set your mind on God. And number three... Let the gospel that saved you be the gospel that changes you. Let the gospel that saved you be the gospel that changes you. You know one of the most tragic things that I hear from Christians all the time when they get saved? Look, Zach, I don't, I don't want to hear about the salvation stuff. Like, you, you talk about that enough. I, I want to go deeper. I need new revelation within the scripture. Almost like they're saying, I don't need the same Jesus that pulled me from the crap that I used to be in. Like, I have arrived at this new place in my relationship with Jesus. The same God that saved you, you need him every day to save you over and over and over again. See, the same Jesus that transformed your life, you need him every single day. Hebrews Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 2, puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. What is he saying? Take inventory of your life and what are the things that are distracting you and get rid of them. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, daily we need the cross. Daily we need the resurrection. Daily we need to understand that God in his grace and mercy pulled us from the grips and clutches of sin and he saved us. And we need him to do it every single day. See, if you feel stale, if you feel cold in your relationship with Jesus, it's because you have a wrong perspective of who he is in your life now. It's not like you got saved and that was the only miracle that God was ever going to perform in your life. And that was the only time that you needed him to rescue you. So we need God to rescue us and save us every single day. See, Jesus is not the guy who fulfills our wish, our wish list. He's the guy who saves us. But oftentimes, the further along that we get in our Christianity, it's no longer the Jesus who saves us. It's the genie in the sky that we're saying, hey, God, I need you to fulfill this, this wish that I have. I need, God, I need something from you. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him. Meaning, man, have you, the issues that you're dealing with in your life right now, like, have you considered Jesus? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, distraction leaves us bored and it leaves us weary. 
So Hebrews says this, have you considered Jesus? See, the reason that technology is so popular is not because the graphics have gotten better. It's not because like the apps have gotten smarter. Ultimately, it's because that there is something deep down inside of us that we're not feeling. That there is something deep down inside of us that we're truly suppressing. And if we're honest with ourselves, our phones have become the new heroin. <laughs> it's the drug of choice. It's the, cho- it's the drug that we don't get judged by, right? We don't lose our families over it. It's something that's not looked down upon because everybody else does it. But the phone has become such a distraction for us, it is distracting us from the real issues of life. And I think the whole reason that I wanted to do this series is because, one, the next series that we're about to move into, and I'll explain more about that in just a moment. But before you to move forward in your walk with Jesus, you have to understand something. The same God that saved you, you need him every single day. You need Jesus more than you think you do. And if you think you need him more, you need him even more. (laughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, if we only spent more of our time in looking at Christ, we soon should forget ourselves. See, how do we set our minds on God? How do we look to the same gospel that saved us? We begin to set our focus on him and slowly like what we want, what we desire begins to fade away and we begin to live the life that God has created us. Can I just, just a very simple question. Are you anxious today? Do you have anxiety? Hebrews 12, three says, have you considered Jesus? Are you depressed? Are you low? Do you feel like you need a relationship to sustain you? What is Hebrews saying? He's saying, consider Jesus. Let me ask you a question. In five minutes, I'll be done. The question is this. Who gets the best of you? Who gets the best of you? Who gets the best piece of you? I would argue today that it's our phones. I would argue today that it's Netflix, it's Hulu, it's social media. They get the best of us. And because they get the best of us, when it comes time to give a piece of our heart to relationships and to God, we've got nothing left to give. And so what happens? We look exactly like Cain. We come to God with our offering and say, God, I have something for you. But by the time we're offering it to God, because it's not our best, it's just what we have left because we've been so distracted. We're so exhausted. We're so tired. So by the time we come to church, by the time we sit down to pray or read or dive into community, we've got nothing left. I don't know if you know this, but I ask this question often. I'll say, hey, how was your week? Oh, man, it was just busy. I'm tired. I didn't sleep much. You know, Americans, this is a true statistic. The average American sleeps about five to six hours a night. 
when in reality science, scientists have proven that you need about eight to ten hours every single night to be refreshed, rejuvenated. Some of you are like, good Lord, I haven't had that in a week. Why, why can't we sleep? Why can't we walk into a room and be happy? We're distracted. Who gets the best of you? Who gets the best of you? See, if you can answer that question, it will reveal the vice that is robbing your mind and your heart and your affections from Jesus. If you were to take your day, your schedule, your week, your life, and you were to narrow it all down and see how many hours you put into each thing, you know that Americans will spend 13 years watching TV? 13 years. I don't know if you know this or not, but you get one life. Like, death is a common thing. (laughs) We all die, right? All of us die. There's tons of research going in right now to, you know, freezing your body and hoping that it can be resurrected some pretty crazy stuff like cutting your head off and maybe you can put it on a robot in the future. That's just weird. Like nobody cheats death. I put this on Facebook the other day and it has a lot to do with the next series that we're going to be diving into. I said the greatest tragedy in life is not death. The greatest tragedy in life is not living the one and only life that God has given you wasting away on this wasting away in front of a screen we said this in the first week nobody's going to come to the end of their life going man I just wish I would have sat in front of the TV more (laughs) just wish I would have stared at my phone a little bit longer I wish I would have built a bigger platform on my Instagram (laughs) nobody's going to come to the end of their life and say that you know what people are going to come to their end of life and say man I I blew it I can't believe that I didn't spend more time with Jesus or more time with my family. See, the greatest desire that I have for this church is that you can be awake. That you can be alive. That you can live in this world and people can look at you different and say, what is different about you? And the difference is you're just not distracted. You're alive. You're awake. You're ready to go. You're in tune with what Jesus has for your life. We can't live in a distracted culture because it robs us from the beauty that life has to offer. It robs us of the fullness that God has for us.